All right, the text is 1 Samuel chapter 19, as we continue through the book of 1 Samuel. David was extremely good, as we will see, at trusting in God. Through all kinds of crazy situations, we'll see this all through the rest of 1 Samuel, he trusted God, and God delivered him again and again and again. And what David is demonstrating for us, I believe, is what the judges were trying to get the Israelites to also demonstrate, a real trust in God. You remember all of the judges pushed the people back to God for a short time, and then they slowly fell back into apostasy, and they were disciplined. Each man in the end did what he thought was right in his own eyes and didn't trust God in the midst of the circumstances that they were in. This is the story of Judges. It's really bringing, it, setting the stage for David to show. Indeed, Saul seems to be setting the stage for David to show. Because David brings something new. Not completely new. Of course, we saw Hannah. Hannah had faith and trusted in God and prayed to God. And God delivered Hannah, gave her a son. This was Samuel. Samuel had faith, trusted God in the midst of hardships. The Israelites, however, seemed to run from God. They rejected God. They desired their own king, and God gave them Saul. And Saul seemed to take Israel right back to the time of the judges, spiraling down into apostasy. But then David is anointed by Samuel, and we see the corresponding decline of Saul and the corresponding rise of David at the same time. And this is what we're reading now in 1 Samuel chapter 19. We'll see that David trusts God in all things. It's a long passage. I'm going to ask you just to remain seated, but hear this inspired word of God for you tonight. 1 Samuel 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and said to all his servants that they should kill David. Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life into his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. 
as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul that he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Amen. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we come to you and ask your, your abiding presence that we might know and understand the truths of this text, and that you might change us. In Jesus' name, amen. David is going through some dark times right now. He's being chased by the king of the land for really, it seems, doing everything right. I'm rereading a short biography on Winston Churchill. He led England through the dark days of 1940. One of the things he said during that dark time was, when you're going through hell, keep going. Meaning that you'll eventually wake up another day, and it will be better. David seemed to have this same mentality regarding the faithfulness of God. No matter what was happening, he was going to continue serving God no matter what. He refused to stop trusting God and trusting in his word. Hence the title that we should also heed, Trust God. It would seem from a human perspective that David started out really well and had everything going for him. Samuel the prophet came and 
picked him out of all of the brothers. Remember? Of course, it was God that chose him. And then he was anointed with oil. And the next thing we know, he's killed the giant, the enemy of Israel. Things are looking good. Things are looking up. Then he's brought to the king's house, the king's own palace, to serve the king. His family is exempted from taxes. Things seem to be going great from a human perspective. But Saul becomes jealous of David and wants to kill David. And as all of Saul's family grow in love with David, Saul himself grows to hate David more and more. So much so that he is on the defensive and now his life is in danger. It would seem to us that God must have removed his favor from David himself and allowed all these horrible things to happen. That's not the truth. The reality is that hardship and trials in life have no relationship to God's love for his people. We just read all of Hebrews chapter 11, where these people put under the test because God hated them? Of course not. They were his beloved. David knew this as well. We should remember this as well. He sends hardship to his children for their good. As difficult as that is, and when you're suffering a terrible hardship, it's a hard truth to recognize that this could somehow be for good. And yet it does bring glory to God for his children to give him glory in the midst of suffering. We're going to read next week Psalm 59 and study that psalm. It's the psalm David wrote based on the time that he was hiding in his own house with people from Saul who were sent to kill him. David never lost hope that God would deliver him, that God had his life in his hand, and we can be just as certain in every circumstance. If you have faith in Christ, you can be just as certain that God is with you. So we see four episodes in this chapter. I'm going to quickly go through them. Um, Four episodes of God's deliverance in David's life, and then we're going to just talk a, a few points of application at the end. First, we see David is delivered by God, through Jonathan, verses 1 through 7. Saul has this secret meeting with his family and all the people in the palace, and he says, hey guys, we're going to kill David. Sound good? I'm sure they were befuddled. He speaks to all of his servants, all of his family. They're going to kill David. Jonathan, of course, doesn't like this scheme because Jonathan is a godly man. First of all, it's wicked, but second of all, it would not serve the purposes of Israel in the slightest, to have the hero of all the land killed by the king. Verse 4, And Jonathan spoke well of David to his father. He says what is obvious to everyone else. David has not sinned against you. He's actually done good for you. He's risked his life for you. God brought great deliverance because of David. The Lord used him greatly. You saw it. You rejoiced. He's innocent. Don't kill him. And Saul listened to him. And Saul swore never to put David to death. By the way, he forgets this oath pretty quickly. Secondly, we see in verses 8 through 10 that David is delivered again. David comes back 
to the palace. Saul sends him out to war. He has great victory over the Philistines. The Philistines flee before him. And now he's back playing the lyre for Saul. And Saul, apparently jealous of all David's success, has another thought to kill him. You remember we read in the previous chapter that his ploy was to send him out to war against the Philistines often because the Philistines would kill him. But that's not happening. He's actually more successful than ever before against the Philistines. So David is there doing what he can to bring peace to the king. And Saul is jealous. And then this harmful spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. Remember, Saul is under judgment. Saul is under God's judgment. And God is judging him by sending, part of it is by sending the Spirit to torment him. And as David is playing the lyre, Saul threw the spear at him to pin him to the wall. David eluded him and fled into the night. So God delivered David that time by his own ability, by his own agility, his own athletic ability. So first he was delivered by his best friend. Now he's delivered just by his own effort. But then in verses 11 through 17, we see another instance of God's deliverance. And this is the, these are the verses that inspired Psalm 59, which we'll study next week. Saul has forgotten all of his oaths to keep David alive. He's now sending spies to David's house to kill him. Assassins, if you will. He's using uh, his government to oppress his political enemies. Michael, his wife, heard about the plot and let David down through a window, and he escaped. And it's actually kind of a humorous episode, because for some reason Michael has an idol in her house. Why? That's a question. Why is there an idol, an image in your house? I don't know. don't know the answer. But even that is used by God for some purpose, because she takes this household god, this idol, puts it in the bed where David sleeps, puts some hair on it, covers it up and puts it on a pillow. I mean, it's, it sounds and looks funny to me. Don't ever say there's no humor at all in the Bible. This is funny. So there's the dummy, the idol, which is a dummy, but pretending to be a dummy, a David. There it is, laying on the bed. The people come from Saul saying, we want to kill David. And she said, oh, he's sick. And points to the bed. With the straw hair, like, how did this work? I don't know. Eventually, they find out the ploy, the plot, and Michael protects David and lies to her dad. So God delivers David this time by using his idol-worshiping wife. So his best friend, his own ability, his idol-worshiping wife. Fourthly, verses 18 through 24. This is a memorable account, also a little bit humorous. Saul sends all of his assassins to find David, and David's with Samuel now. And as soon as they get close, the Spirit of God overpowers them, and they prophesy. Now, the word prophesy can mean a few different things. What it probably means, since these men probably weren't God's men, it probably means they just are speaking truth about God, about David. They're prophesying truth. 
But the point to key on is that the Spirit of God overpowers them. He subdues them. And then Saul himself goes. After sending three groups of assassins, he goes himself. And then God does the same to Saul. And then we see Saul, again, stripped of all his clothes. You remember we, we learned that in the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the robe is the symbol that Samuel or the writer uses to signify the, the king kingship or God's favor. And we continue to see the kingly robes given to David. Jonathan gave his kingly robes to David. David is um, seen always as one who is kingly and robed and kingly clothing, and Saul is seen as one constantly stripped of his kingly robes. And once again, David is delivered, this time by God himself, miraculously, supernaturally. So what points of application do I have for you from this narrative, these four narratives? Well, first, I just want to talk about God's care of his people. Do you realize how much God cares for his children? I think we need to be often reminded of this. So I often do. I remind myself of it, and I want to remind you of this. You don't know all the ways that God loves and cares for you. You don't know it. All the things he protects you from that you don't even realize. All the sins that could be so much worse in your life that he is restraining for your own good. All the health issues that you don't have only because he is giving you health. All of the evil that could be in your life if it weren't for God's protecting hand. He cares for his children. He cares for you. And every time you face a difficult circumstance, as David did, do like David and trust God. It might not always be nice and neat. Like these four narratives are messy. And yet each time someone tries to hurt David, God's beloved son, God delivers him. He loves each of his children with an unending love. So don't mistake the trials and the hardships of life with God's disfavor. It's not always the case. For his children, even if it is some kind of discipline, praise God, it's for your good. If you're stuck in some kind of sin and you're being disciplined by God, so be it. Praise the Lord. He loves you. And he's not going to discipline you any more than is required to achieve your sanctification. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But you might be like Job or like David, suffering for God's glory alone, for nothing you've done, just suffering for God's glory and for you to be more holy and sanctified with a greater understanding of your Father. Either way, you are loved by God. And his love is infinite. His love is eternal and his love will never change. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you should never think in your life, oh, God's so disappointed with me. He's just, he just can't stand me right now. It's not true. You're forgiven. He looks at you through the lens of his son and that righteousness is yours. 
Yes, he'll discipline you, but he'll discipline you in love. He loves you. And the same Holy Spirit who overpowered Saul to thwart all of the evil designs of the enemy, this Holy Spirit lives in you, and he's overpowered you for your good. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the Holy Trinity, conspire to save you and to keep you. And nothing the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil can do will stop that. He loves you. And he takes care of you. I want to focus just a moment on Romans 5.5. 5. Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This Holy Spirit that lives in you, who's subdued you, who's overpowered you for your good, has poured God's love into your hearts. And that's not a love for God. That's a knowledge of God's love for you. He's poured this into your hearts. This is the same word that's used in the second chapter of Acts describing uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was poured upon the people. The Holy Spirit has flooded, as another translation, flooded your hearts with God's love. We know that He loves us. This is what He does. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And this knowledge of God's love fills us so completely that all suffering and hardship really are seen in the right circumstances, are seen in the right perspective, rather. And that's temporary, not eternal. Because the things that are eternal are related to the love of God for you, Romans 8. This is Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 as well. He writes, according to the riches of his glory, that he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Amen. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Amen. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. This is what the spirit is doing. That you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Not that you will love Christ, but that you know the love of Christ for you. This is what the Spirit does for us. So you see, David, through every terrible circumstance, he knew one thing for sure. God loved him. He knew that. And he trusted this God who loved him. And he seemed to grow in his knowledge of love of God throughout each one of these trials. He learned to rest in God, to trust in God more each time. Not less. So trials in this context are a great blessing to the Christian. William Gurnall, the Puritan, wrote, The storm may be tempestuous, but it is only temporary. The clouds that are presently rolling over your head will pass, and then you will have fair weather, an eternal sunshine of glory. Can you not watch with Christ for one hour? 
Bid faith to look through the keyhole of the promise and see what God has laid up for those that love him. You serve a God who keeps covenant forever. So when the Spirit of God floods the believer's heart with a knowledge of the love of God, they will trust God like David. They'll see God's loving hand both in suffering and in blessing and in deliverance. So God cares for his children well and loves his children. Secondly, let's notice the means of God's deliverance. First, it was the best friend. Then it was the idol-worshiping wife. Then it was his own ability. Then it was God miraculously subduing his enemies, his own spirit. So looking back on these things, I'm sure David thought, what can touch me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Do you think these thoughts are are new to David, or sorry, to Paul in Romans 8? All God's saints know these things. If God is for you, who can be against you? The answers weren't always what he expected, but the point is that it was all God. Who knows why the idols were in the house? I don't know. Did they argue about this? Why are these idols in the house? I don't know. In the end, God used all of it for his own glory. You never know where your deliverance is coming from. Your job isn't to figure that out. Your job is to be patient, be still, and trust your God. Patience is hard, isn't it? It's hard for me. I I don't do patience well. I do going well. I do climbing, achieving, running. I do those things well. But being still and being patient, that's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for many of you. Imagine Joseph rotting in prison for years. He trusted his God. God took his own time to deliver Joseph from the jail. But the key is that he will always deliver his own beloved children, and it may not be the way you think it should happen. Our final deliverance will be the most satisfying deliverance, and that's death. We'll be free from sin and suffering, from sorrow, from any pain, and we'll be with our Savior forever and ever. So even death is not something that we fear if Saul had actually killed David, would God have failed? No. He would have worked out his own plan for his own glory, and David would have been safe in his father's arms. We don't know where our deliverance will come from, and it's not our job to understand or figure it out. All we need to do is trust our God, who has prepared an inheritance for us that is beyond anything we can imagine. We don't understand heaven. We can't even hardly see a glimpse of how glorious it's going to be. But we know that it's going to be more glorious than anything we could ever comprehend. And it's going to last forever and ever and ever. I can't wait. Mostly because our Savior Jesus Christ is going to be there. This is the love that that the Holy Spirit pours into your heart if you love Christ. You want more than anything else in the world to be with him. And maybe you say, well, that love is not really great in my heart right now. It will be. You begin meditating on the goodness and the glory of God. And you will see that love, the Holy Spirit, give you that love and grow that love for Jesus. And understand the great love he has for you. Those who love Christ... 
trust God for whatever means of deliverance he chooses. And he'll use all sorts of things to deliver his people, but he will. You can bank on that. Thirdly, let's look at the purpose of hardship and suffering. David knew about suffering. Samuel Rutherford, he wrote a little book that's in the back, The Loveliness of Christ. He knew suffering. You read that book and you just know this man understood suffering. What did he learn from all of his suffering? He learned that Jesus Christ was there to comfort him, to be with him, to hold him close. And that whatever he endured was worth every drop of suffering if he could be with Jesus forever. So what's the purpose of suffering? Hebrews 12, I think, says it best. Verses 5 through 11. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, ladies as daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time. It seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there's really two aspects of discipline. You can be disciplined because of sin. God loves you and he's correcting something. But you can also just be disciplined so that God, in other words, kind of trained to see God clearly. You're suffering in your hardship like David's, like Joseph's, like Job's. Serves the purpose of just glorifying God in your heart. So hardship serves both purposes. Sometimes simultaneously, sometimes separately. And the hardship brought up on David was no accident. God was treating David as a beloved son. As one whom he loves. And any son who is not disciplined is not loved. So that helps you when you feel the hardship of life come upon you. When, when life seems to roll over you and leave you lying flat. And in your despair, in your heartache, in that difficult moment, you need to remember this. I need to hold on to God. I need to trust in God. Because even though it hurts this bad, I know He loves me. And this is for my good. This is for the greater glory of God. I don't understand it. Lord, help me. Lord, it hurts. But praise God that you are with me. Hardship and trials are for our good that we may share in his holiness. The one filled with the Spirit wants nothing more than to be holy. That means Christ-like. Because if you are holy, you can see God more clearly. And seeing God clearly is the ultimate goal. Because when we see Him clearly, we worship Him well. We love Him well. Those who really know the love of God, if He has shed His love in your heart, 
then holiness is the thing you really do desire. And when you pray for holiness, you know this is a prayer that He will answer because He loves you. And it's important. Packer says He will not take into His company any person, however orthodox in mind, who will not follow after holiness of life. The new creation will always pursue the new life. There's no such thing as the carnal Christian, the part-time Christian, the private Christian. These are all oxymorons. They don't make sense. I'm a Christian, but I don't read my Bible. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't pray. Yeah, I just live a worldly life, but it's okay. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. These things are just nonsensical. They don't make sense. The Christian, the new creation, is the one whose whole life is changed and focused on Christ. These things will all be revealed in the end. Those who truly trust God and those who do not. The fact remains that when God's children are in the midst of any hardship, He's showing them love and refining them in fire. And it's for their good and it's for His glory. It really is. And I'm not discounting the hardness of some hardships, the horrible pain of life, losing loved ones, of seeing your people suffer. I mean, these are real. And yet our God is good. and He loves you. So remember, He loves His people. David knew that. Remember that God will deliver you in whatever way He chooses. David knew that. Remember that God brings hardship to display His own glory. This is for His own purpose. It's not because He hates you. He loves you and is sanctifying you for His own purposes. And David knew that as well. So let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so much that You love Your children. You deliver Your own. And You call us to trust You. To trust You in this life. To adhere to Your Word to value your holy scripture, to hold high the standard of godliness. Lord, you've called us to be separate from the world. And yet our hearts are ever inclined to pursue the world and our own flesh. We pray that you would give us an understanding. Give us a a glimpse. Help us to As Paul said, understand how high and wide and deep and long is the love of God for us. And may this be the springboard to all kinds of holy living, all kinds of love for God. Lord, we are the clay and you are the potter. Do with us as you will. Make us your own. Discipline us, chasten us, love us, care for us. But always remember that we are yours. You have called us by name. So have mercy upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.